the end times. There was a time when those three words sent shivers down my spine. Not sure any other such combination of words caused me to fear so much unless they were final exam. But even those words, though they were awful enough to send my belly into my boots and my heart into my throat, making for a seriously out-of-balance feeling, even those words did not cause me to quake like the end times. The fear wrought by final exam was temporary. Ready or not, it came and went, and then, ready or not, it was over and done with. A small terror that passed in a day, perhaps leaving shambles in its wake, but in the grand scheme of things, Nothing a good curve couldn't put back in order. But those other three words, the end times, I learned to fear them. In our Pentecostal church back in the day, we heard and talked and worried and wondered a lot about the end times. We watched bad but sincere movies together and read the notes on our Schofield Bibles, looked at wall charts and competed to figure out which international figure was the mysterious Antichrist. We listened to radio preachers who watched international events with the intensity of medieval monks poring over manuscripts and the zeal of teenage boys playing video games. Moscow was Magog. This was Cold War, end times thinking after all. Armageddon was just around the corner. The Chinese or the Russians would begin the attack against Israel and the end would come. And in our more patriotic moments, we imagined a special role for the United States, the mighty army at God's own right hand, there to defend Israel and so prove its righteousness once and for all. Well, lest it sound like I'm making fun, let me assure you that while I now may find much of our speculation to have been misguided, we were quite earnest, trained as we were in a particular religious tradition that understood that Jesus would come and take us home before unleashing or allowing havoc upon the earth whether before or after a millennial reign. It was natural and exciting to engage in these speculations. And while I've long since settled into a cooler interest in the end times, I think our youthful passion was rather faithful in its own peculiar way. We genuinely expected Christ to return. We wanted that to happen, and we wanted it to be soon. And most important of all, we wanted to be ready which reminds me of another frightening set of words, a whole sentence this time, a song lyric from those anxious days. I wish we'd all been ready. Every last one of us at one time or another practiced saying the words, save me Jesus, as quickly as we could so that when the last trumpet sounded, we'd get by, if in no other way than by the skin of our teeth. And that was the fear in us. And that sounds really silly, but that was the fear in us. Our fear of the end times caused us to practice that cosmic SOS. Despite placing our hearts and lives in the very hands of God when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, despite memorizing John's 3.16 and other comforting verses in our heart of hearts, there lurked fear, a fear of being left behind. And that was long before those words made Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins multimillionaires. A fear of somehow losing our salvation, of failing at the last moment, of being left behind. There's much about those years in that theological training that I'm very glad for, much that I believe has shaped me for the better. And as much as I'm grateful to have moved beyond it, or more accurately, I hope, grateful for having been led by the Spirit to move beyond it, that scary, intense end-time speculating was important to my faith formation. 
Because if nothing else, it taught me that following Jesus was a life and death matter, serious business, and far more than affectation or religion, the kind of thing that made it possible for me to become a Mennonite, to become part of a tradition that not only says that following Jesus is dangerous, but at least once upon a time believed that and acted like it were true. If anything, those old Pentecostals were not serious enough, at least when it came to the kind of Christian living that placed one in direct opposition to the powers and principalities of this world. They were not quick to tell us to choose between God and mammon, or God and Caesar, or God and some other entity claiming our allegiance. For that kind of calling, I needed to become a Mennonite. Still, I'm deeply grateful for the faith tradition of my youth, peculiar as it may seem to those who didn't share it and who may find it ludicrous or even frightening. It served me well, I think. But one thing I do regret, uh, or maybe just have a harder time letting go of, um, was the fear in that end times teaching. As I said, the word, the end times, they were scary to me. They inspired terrible visions of fire and blood. Awful dreams of being left behind or abandoned to the consequences of our sin. Midnight mutterings of Jesus saved me, spoken not in adoration or hope, but in fear and a very basic lack of trust in what we claimed to already have been given in Christ. Whatever hope we had of his coming was wound all about with fear, with anxiety, with visions of apocalypse. It's been said that an unintended flaw in Milton's Paradise Lost was that his Satan was a much more interesting character than his Jesus, that Satan stole the poem in ways that likely would have horrified the devout poet. And it's something like that that I'm trying to explain here. It's not that we didn't believe that Jesus was powerful. We did. We worshipped him and committed ourselves to him and proclaimed that he'd redeemed us. We believed that Jesus was powerful. But deep down inside, we worried that Satan... Maybe Satan was stronger. We've never, ever would have said that out loud. But if you examined our hearts when someone said the words, the end times, I think that's what you'd have found. We lifted up our heads in dread of that day because we could not count on being part of those rescued from the consequences of human sin and Satan's power. We read texts like those from last Sunday, texts describing weird signs in the sky and the world being shaken, and we focused on the scary parts and so missed or muted those wonderful, amazing words, your redemption draws near. Our teaching and theological education had oriented us to see some things and to diminish others. We were handed a certain set of lenses to read the scriptures through and they limited our vision to what made us afraid. And so even though we knew we should be hopeful, we should be excited, we ought to be looking forward to the end times, we were still afraid. I read a quote in this week's edition of The Christian Century, which provoked and guided my thinking as I prepared for this sermon. In describing the difference between Catholic teaching on the end times and a fundamentalist dispensationalist view of the end times, the writer said this, in striking contrast to the dispensationalist rapture scenario, which is preoccupied with the question, what must we fear? The expectation of the second coming is really about the Christian response to the question, what may we hope? In my youth, I held to that fundamentalist dispensationalist view of the end times. And my question really was, what must I fear? And the answer was plain, I must fear being left behind. Now, though I'm not a Catholic, but a Mennonite, I find myself much more interested 
much more interested in and drawn to and moved by that other question, the question we ask of Christ's return. What may I hope? Well, let's think about how today's text might answer that question. Malachi tells the post-exile community that they may count on God's coming to them. The people had been complaining about God's long silence and God's failure to make the restored Judah a blessed and powerful nation. Sure, they came back from exile and rebuilt the city and the temple, but they were still stuck under that old Persian slipper, that soft imperialism that on the surface made them free, but in truth was just as hard and firm and unbending as that of any other imperial power. Why didn't God remove that iron slipper from their necks and restore them to the glory days of David and Solomon? And so God speaks through the prophet and says that a messenger, my messenger, Malachi, is coming to prepare for the day, to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. And then the scary part. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? The answer is obvious. No one can endure. No one can stand. Moses himself could not look upon the Lord and live. No sinful human being can endure the coming of the Lord. No sinful human being can stand in the presence of the Lord and live. And yet, and yet there's hope. Because human sin does not determine the outcome. It never has, really. Not that there won't be cleaning up to do. Not that there won't be fire and radical upheavals and reversals and other earth-shaking accompaniments to that coming. The Lord is like a refiner's fire burning away all that separates us from God, all that separates us from one another, all that separates us from creation. The Lord's coming is like fuller's soap, cleansing and making bright our woolen garments, preparing them for wearing by God's children. The religious leaders will be cleansed, prepared, made ready for that coming. And after all of that purifying, all of that cleansing, all of that preparing, the people will once again be ready to worship and to offer themselves and their sacrifices to God in ways which God finds pleasing. All the fire and water, all the earth-shaking, all the signs and other wonders are coming, but not to destroy, but instead to cleanse, to make ready, to purify, to preserve, to save. There will be hard stuff coming, especially for those who steal from the poor and cheat the pious, those who break the commandments. God's coming. God's coming is not some cosmic group hug, and let's just pretend it never happened, shall we? There's cleansing to be done, purifying to be done, preparing to be done. But those things are not the end of the story. They are not the whole of the story. If they were, human Sid would have set the agenda and determined the outcome. Fear would be the proper emotion and dread the proper stance when contemplating that day. But there's hope, sisters and brothers, because the whole story is one of salvation, The end of the story is the people cleansed and made worthy to stand in God's presence. The outcome is not determined by human sinfulness, but by the everlasting mercy and grace of the God who created and redeems the whole world and everything in it. Indeed, as our New Testament readings make clear, the end of the story is the one whose advent we await. John the messenger, the baptizer, is born, and his father sings a song of coming redemption. And Zechariah's song makes clear that what is coming is altogether hopeful and rooted in the deepest reaches of time. Ancient promises are about to be fulfilled, and the God of Abraham and Sarah is once again intervening in history. And God's purpose is to save and to cleanse humanity 
so that they can once again stand in God's presence and offer God their worship without spot or wrinkle, without any taint of sin. And Zechariah's long-awaited son, John, will be the messenger, the prophet, the one called by God to prepare the way for God's coming. And Zechariah's song ends with those beautiful words, words of hope beyond all hope, words which ought to make us lift up our heads and be glad for what is about to come. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What more hopeful words can we imagine? Something hopeful this way comes. And so old Zacharias sings. And what a messenger. What a messenger this son of Elizabeth and Zechariah turns out to be. An old school prophet, all sunburned and ragged, tough as the rocks he lived among, all bushy-haired and bearded with a mouthful of bugs and honey, a figure that would likely scare the pants off of us, but one that the people recognized immediately as being sent from God. That terrible light in his eyes signified nothing else but an anointing of the Spirit. That rough voice calling them to repent, to prepare, to get ready, signified nothing less than a word from the Lord, a word long awaited, a word not heard for centuries. God was speaking out loud again. And though the words seemed harsh to our ears, they were received by many as water springing up from a rock or manna in the desert. Rich, hearty, heady, scary, exhilarating words from God's own mouth. Who would have guessed that such words would be spoken in their lifetimes? Hard words, yes, but welcome and hopeful. God had not abandoned them after all. And so John came and preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the people came to be baptized, to hear him and to be baptized by him in the Jordan. Preparations were being made for whatever it was that God was about to do. Something hopeful this way comes. Let's make the way smooth and get our houses in order. And so the people did. Now, it's important to note, I think, as Luke does, Luke obviously thinks this is important, to know that all of this happened at a very specific place in a very specific time. Like those post-exile Israelites looking for a word from the Lord while they lived under that iron slipper, these first century Jews were looking for a word from the Lord while living under the boot of Rome. The reality they inhabited was that of a people under the thumb of a human power, a principality, an entity, that demanded allegiance in return for a measure of peace. All they could see was the might of Persia, the might of Rome. Whatever other power there was had faded into memory. Until that day, until that day when Elizabeth gave birth, or that day when John came walking out of the wilderness, or that day when a teenage girl was visited by an angel and proved herself worthy to bring forth the very light of the world, while some mark time by the passing of governments and armies, emperors and world leaders, we who look to God for our hope are called to mark, mark that time by the passing of moments such as these, a voice crying in the wilderness, a baby leaping in the womb, a messenger speaking words of promise, an old man singing a song of redemption, a call to repent and prepare ourselves for what is coming. Sisters and brothers, the end times, whatever they may look like, need not make us afraid. Christ's coming need not make us afraid. As our text 
make clear, as the whole of Scripture makes clear, God's intention from the beginning was to seek and to save that which is lost. To judge the world, yes, but to redeem it. To cleanse us and refine us, yes, but only so we can stand in God's presence without fear, without shame. This is the word of the Lord, as spoken through Malachi, Zechariah, and John the Baptizer. The heavens may fill with fire, the moon may turn red, the earth itself may shake and the mountains bend low. Who can endure the coming of the Lord? Who can stand in God's holy presence? Those who hear the call to repentance, who receive whatever cleansing and refining is needed, who hear the voice crying in the wilderness and recognize it is the voice of one sent by God to announce our salvation. In other words, all those whom God sent Christ to save. As Martin Luther wrote in his great hymn, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word. Above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Like goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. God's kingdom is forever. Sisters and brothers, something hopeful this way comes. Be not afraid. Lift up your heads. Your redemption draws near. Hallelujah. Amen.